as always, great job of picking the songs out. They just fit beautifully with where we're going today in Psalm 74. I called this psalm, the title of this psalm is When the Roof Falls In. There's an interesting title. What happens in our lives? Where do we turn when everything seems to be just kind of caving in on us? Does that sound a little bit like where we're at right now? The subject of this chapter is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The, the author of this chapter is a gentleman that John Rowley introduced to us last week by the name of Asaph. Asaph was from the tribe of Levi. Now, the Levites were the tribe that God chose to oversee the care of the worship around the temple, the sacrifices and the music and the decor and all of those things. The, the Levites were the ones who oversaw all that. So Asaph was in was a member of the Levites, but he was specifically assigned by King David and then by Solomon to oversee the music, specifically. He served during the reign of both David and Solomon. We read about him in the book of, books of Chronicles. But we have a little dilemma because the theme of this chapter, as we were going to see, is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened about 586 B.C. by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. So there's about 400-plus-year time span separation between when Asaph was alive and living and writing and this event that's written about in chapter 74. So how do we reconcile that? So as I went through the commentaries, there were three options that are kind of put out there for consideration. One option is that it's really talking about a different catastrophe than the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. It's Asaph was writing about an event that happened much earlier during the time of Samuel the prophet and Eli the priest. It's recorded in 1 Samuel 4. It's where the Philistines defeated the, the army of Israel and they took the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh, the place where it was stored. And so one view is that maybe Asaph was referring back to a time earlier. Maybe he was alive or maybe he's writing in memory of it, of something that happened much earlier. That's a possibility. The second possibility is that maybe he's writing about an event that's future. We do know from First and Second Chronicles, it mentions the fact that Asaph was a prophet, that he was a seer that God gave him the ability somehow to see into the future. That's a possibility. Uh, maybe he's writing into the future. But then there's a third possibility, and this is the direction that I'm going to go, and most of the commentaries go with this one, that it's a later Asaph. Let me explain that one a little bit. This psalm was written by a member of the school of Asaph, which happened much later many years later during the time of the Babylonian captivity. And I want to read one of the commentaries explains this pretty well. James Boyce says this. He explains the thinking of a later Asaph. He says, either this is a later Asaph, which is not unlikely since the name might have been perpetuated among the temple musicians. So it was a common name, especially amongst temple musicians. Maybe it's another Asaph. Or more likely... The name was affixed to many psalms produced by this body of musicians, 
we know that the descendants of Asaph are functioning as late as the reign of Josiah in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. So this idea that there was a school of musicians, descendants of Asaph, in the tradition of Asaph. And so maybe, one of the possibilities, it was written during a later time by one of them with the name Asaph attached to it. So that's a very possible explanation. There's two things about this psalm that make it kind of unique. One is it's a community lament. Last week, John Rowley preached on Psalm 73, an individual lament. God, help me. It's directed to an individual, to a person. This one's directed to a community of people. It's God, help us. It's we are in big trouble, Lord. And your, your temple has been destroyed, God. Your enemy seems to be winning here. We as a people come to you and plead your, our case before you. So he's, it's a community lament. But what's different about this, this community lament, he seems to say it's not just that they've offended us, that they've hurt us, that they've destroyed our temple, but he brings God's cause into it. He says, God, look what they've done to you. Look how they've defiled your temple, your name, your glory. And so we're going to see that element brought into this chapter. The main point of this chapter is that in the middle of community lament, people lamenting together over the destruction of the temple, the people affirm God's creative and redemptive powers and find this as their source of hope. We're going to see today that in the middle of difficulty as a people, we can come to God, remember who He is, remember what He's done, and we can find hope and strength and faith in that. And that's what we're going to see in Psalm 74. So let's read this psalm. I'm going to start with the first two verses. And the note takers, I think you have them in your seats if they were given out to you. This is the plea, verses 1 and 2. O God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember, this word's going to come up often in this chapter. Remember, God. Remember the nation you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance whom you redeemed. Mount Zion, where you dwelt. Twice in verse 1, the psalmist, the author here, asks why. The punishment that caused the destruction of the temple was known. It was the sin of the people of Israel. It was idolatry. God had warned them. He had told them, you need to stop or else this will happen. They knew it was coming. It was forewarned. They knew the why, but this is more of a plea than a question. Kidner in his commentary says, the psalmist isn't questioning the correctness of God's judgment. He's not saying, God, why are you doing this? He's more, he's using the question as a basis for an appeal to God's shepherd heart. It's an appeal, it's a plea to the great shepherd. He says, your anger is smoldering against the sheep of your pasture, God. 
There's three reasons for this why. Number one is because of the magnitude of God's anger. It's smoldering. It's this fire. We can't bear it. Number two, there's the proximity of their past relationship. We were your sheep. You were our shepherd, God. Psalm 100, verse 3. We are the people of your pasture. They're that close relationship that they had with God. And then there's this alienation now that they're feeling from God because of the destruction of the temple. You know, when there's three options when we complain. We can go one of three ways with it. We can complain to ourself, which is usually where we start out. Rumble, grumble, self. That doesn't go very far, and it's really not very helpful, to be honest. So then maybe we take it the next step. We complain to others. So basically all we're doing there, misery loves company, right? We're just bringing them in to our complaint with us. It's a little better. Maybe we find a little comfort there with other people. But the best thing we can do is bring it to God. Bring it before Him. That's what the lament psalms are all about. It's a complaint of what's going on in their life, but they're bringing it to someone who can do something about it. God. Verse 2 God, I want you to remember three things, the psalmist says. Number one, we are your purchased people from long ago. Remember, God, when you purchased us? Number two, we are your redeemed people. We are your inheritance, God. We're special to you. We are your treasure. And then number three, remember you dwelt among us. Remember Mount Zion, that place, that place in Jerusalem where the temple was built, where your glory dwelt, where we went to worship you. Remember those things, God. Remember them. Exodus 15 verses 12 to 17 is going to repeat a lot of the same themes that we're going to see in this chapter here. This is the song of Moses after the people came out of the Red Sea as they watch God deliver them from their enemy, the Egyptians. Here's what Moses sang to the people. This is just a portion of it, verses 12 to 17. He says, You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies, God. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. There it is. You've redeemed us, God. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling, There's that hope, there's that dream in their heart for this place. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. That's how great you are. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought, there's that theme again, purchased, redeemed that you bought until they pass by you will bring them in you will plant them on the mountain of your inheritance the place lord you made for your dwelling the sanctuary lord your hands established there's the idea that the purchased people that you redeemed that you bought there's the image of god's right arm and we're going to see that later in this chapter god you delivered us with the strength of your right arm There's this idea and this hope for this dwelling place, Mount Zion, which will be established later on. 
So all these things have been a part of Israel for many years, and so Asaph is just reclaiming these things. The people had sinned. They had been punished by God. Now, there's always a remnant of people that follow God. That's the way it always is. It's true today. It seems like the world is walking away from God, but there are those of of us who follow God faithfully. He always has his remnant. But sometimes we suffer as a result of other people's choices and and their lack of following after God, and that's the situation here. This author of the Psalms was most likely following after God, but he was suffering the results or the consequences of his people, the choices that they had made. When we sin, we can come to God on the basis of these same three things that he just asked God to remember here in verse 2. We can ask God and remember that we are his people who are purchased, who are redeemed, And then the idea of him dwelling. In their day, it was in a place. It was the temple. We know from Scripture that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by God. So we can come before God on the basis of those same three things. We are a purchased people. We're a redeemed people. We're an indwelt people. That's who we are as believers. Lord, on the basis of that, remember. Now, we're not insulting God. He's not insulting God by saying remember. I need to point that out. God didn't forget. He never forgets. He always knows. It's not a bad memory here. He's saying, God, act on what you've already promised. That's really what he's saying by remember. Act on your promises, what we know to be true. Lord, I'm asking you to act on your promise to forgive me. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, you have said that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm just, Lord, please remember, and I'm asking you for forgiveness. So, why the appeal? What's going on? Well, the roof has literally fallen in. Let's read verses 3 to 8. Here's the description of what he sees and what has happened. Turn your steps toward these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name, God. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. Wow. We're talking about complete destruction here, the destruction of the sanctuary. And he's looking on the destruction, and he's overwhelmed by what he sees. Verse 3, he says, God, turn your steps. It's literally lift up. Lift up your feet. God, move quickly. Come quickly to our help. He speaks of everlasting ruins. In his heart, maybe in his mind, will the temple ever be rebuilt? It wasn't, was it? Until much later. Will the temple ever be rebuilt? God, it just seems impossible right now. 
It was. Your foes have roared in verse four. Instead of the sounds of priestly blessings and people worshiping God in song and prayer, there's this ugly sound of enemies roaring against God in his sanctuary. It says they have set up standards as signs, these idolatrous emblems that were set up in the holy place. They had come in and they had set up their signs and their standards in the place where God's holy place was. You know, today, I think of this in terms of as I drive around town, I see churches that used to stand for the gospel and sometimes I see churches that have emblems or banners or signs out front that have nothing to do with the gospel, have nothing to do with God, have nothing to do with scripture, have everything to do with just worldly philosophies and things that they think are important. And I thought, how sad. There's that feeling is they've taken something that's special, the church. They've made it into a place, it's just worldly. And it breaks my heart. I know you probably understand what I'm talking about. Maybe pulpits where the gospel used to be preached where now it's just the news of the day or things that people like to hear that are popular out there in culture. We've lost sight of the truth of the gospel in our church, a lot of our churches today. Praise God there's a lot of good churches still around that are still standing for what's true and the emblem of the cross and the gospel are still strong in a lot of them. Verses five to seven, picture this It's like they're going through with axes and hatchets and they're just chopping down the temple of God. All these beautiful wood panelings that have been carved to represent something beautiful about God in the temple are now being just destroyed and cut up. And the gold and the silver that overlaid these beautiful wood panelings have now been taken away by the Babylonians into the captivity. And they burn it to the ground. There's just ashes left, God. What a pathetic and what a sad sight. But it goes beyond there. Look at verse 8. We get an insight into their heart, into their motive, into their evil motives. It says, they have said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They've burned every place where God was worshipped. Not just the temple. That was the main place. That was where the worship happened most of the time. But there were other places where people could worship God. And they purposed in their heart, they said in their heart, we want to not just destroy the building of God, but we want to destroy the people of God. And we want to take away all of their hope from anywhere in the land. So this is a complete, all-out, vicious attack on God's people. And there's this feeling of abandonment in verses 9 through 11. As a result of what he sees in the destruction, this is how he feels right now, verses 9 through 11. We are given no signs from God, no prophets are left, and none of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your right hand? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them, God. 
He's feeling abandoned. You know, he goes from what he sees in, in, for, in the, verses 3 through 8 to what he doesn't see. There's three things missing now, God. Number one, verse 9, there's no signs. There's no miracles. There's no works of God that I see. Number two, there's no prophets. There's no word coming from God through his prophets. We do know in Lamentations chapter 2, it says that after the destruction of the temple, that the prophets no longer receive visions from the Lord. That was part of God's punishment on his people. There was a time where it seemed like God was withdrawing from them. There was no word coming through his prophets. And then the third thing, he says, there's no end in sight. Is this going to go on forever, God? When I read that, the first thing I thought of is COVID, right? It started. It continues. God, it just feels like there's no end in sight here. Lord, please help us. And that's how he's feeling. We're abandoned here, Lord. So he picks up the question, how long? But it's not how long, God, will they torment us, although that's happening. It's how long are you going to allow them to blaspheme your name, God, to revile your glory? God, don't you feel it? Don't you hear what they're saying? Don't you understand what's going on here, God? How long are you going to allow this to take place? And then verse 11, would you please, God, Take out your right hand from the cloak and do some business. Take it out on them. The right hand represents the power of God, his authority, his ability to do what he wants, his right hand. He can do whatever he wants. So God, why the delay? The rest of this chapter is gonna be about remembering. We started that theme in verse two, but from verses 12 to seven, he's gonna say, Remember people. He's going to call the people to remember God's redemptive and creative acts. Let's read this. This is a beautiful section, verses 12 to 17. This is what he says. But God. We could stop right there. But God is my king. Isn't that beautiful? God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power, God. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours and yours also the night. You established the sun and the moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. God, there's just this huge transition, and this happens in the the Psalms of Lament from woe is me, woe is us, to God. But God, there's this incredible transition from lament to praise. You know, it's interesting, if you put but God in front of any situation, it changes everything, doesn't it? You know, lost my job. There was no hope in sight, but God. I was in a deep state of depression. I didn't have any hope in this life, but God. 
Ephesians points this out to us in understanding theology. Ephesians 2, verses 3 to 5. Listen to what Paul says about this. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's who we were, people, before Christ. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we are dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Amen? Man, what, that's, that's the story. That's the story. Who we were, who we are. Who we were was deserving of wrath. We were in a lost and dead place, but God. You know, if you take out God's mercy, all you're left with is God's wrath. That's a place you don't want to be. But God, who is rich in mercy, He made us alive in Christ Jesus by Faith, by grace we are saved. Isn't that an amazing tale? But God, he remembers who God is. In the middle of the mess, when the, you know, the roof's falling in, I remember God. God is my king. And I love it that he puts that personal pronoun there. It's not God is the king, although he is. It's not that God is our king, he is. But I love it that he says God is my, my king. I think as believers, this is something we need to latch on to. We understand very clearly that He is our Savior. Amen? God is our Savior. He came, He died, He brought victory over our sin, He is our Savior. But I think we need to remember God is our King. Jesus is our King. Romans 10, 9 and 10, last week, the Romans wrote, If you confess with your mouth... Jesus is Lord. He's king. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. There's both pieces there. He's the king. He's over all. He's my king. And he's my savior who took care of my sin. But he also owns my life. And he owns this world. And he's in charge of everything. And so I'm going to recognize him as such. It's such a beautiful thing. You know, what he saw with his physical eyes was a destroyed temple, a victorious enemy, these idolatrous signs and symbols. There were no prophets, no miracles happening. That's what he saw with his physical eyes, visibly. But what he saw with eyes of faith is his God, the creator king who's ruling over his universe, the God who acted in the past and will continue to do so in the future. He points out six different things, starting in verse um, 13, down through verse 17, that God had done for his people Israel, involving the act of redemption, bringing them out of Egypt, and then his acts over creation. So let's look at these. Verse 13, God, number one, you split open the sea. Wow. That was God's ultimate that day when they saw the sea close on their enemy, that was the day they realized that God had finally fully delivered them from Egypt. That's why they sang that song from Exodus 15 that I read earlier. They sang that song on the shore 
and praise and worship to God. He had fully delivered them. He had destroyed their enemy. He had split open the sea. He had broken the heads of the monster, the Leviathan there in verses 13 and 14. What is going on there? What's he talking about? Well, there's a lot, actually. Serpents of the sea in in their day and age, in ancient culture, were feared creatures for people that were sailors or fishermen. He's giving praise to God for conquering those creatures that might be feared amongst us. But there's more than that, and I came across some of these um, ideas. One idea is that it's a possible reference to Egypt, and that would make sense in the context of splitting open the sea and destroying. And I want to read this, Isaiah 51, verses 9 and 10. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces? I'm going to come back to that. Who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? Who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? This passage brings in the idea of by killing this monster, this Leviathan. Now, in Isaiah 51, 9 and 10, it refers to cutting Rahab to pieces. We hear Rahab, we think of that lady in Jericho that was saved and was part of the line of Jesus Christ. But in the book of Isaiah, Rahab is a poetic name for Egypt, And it refers to this Rahab idea and other places in the book of Isaiah. So here we have this picture of God delivering his people by cutting Egypt into pieces and killing the monster. And I think that's the picture that the psalmist is bringing here. God, you delivered us. You split the sea open. We could pass through on dry land. You killed our enemy right there in the middle of the sea. But there's also, in the middle of all this, and In our culture, we don't see it, but back then it would have made sense. It's this language of Canaanite mythology. I wanted to read this little section. It says, in the ancient Middle East, there were many popular legends about the gods who combated different hostile deities in order to create the earth. Biblical authors show that Yahweh is the hero. It is Yahweh who divided the sea, even though the ancient legends said that Tiamat, the deep, was the chaotic goddess defeated by the hero god Marduk, or Yam, the sea, who was defeated by Baal. It is Yahweh who broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces, not Marduk or Baal. That's what the psalmist is saying. All the credit is given to the right God. The point here is that what Baal and Marduk had claimed in the realm of myth, God had done in the realm of history delivering his people and working salvation. So there's this imagery that would have been familiar in their thinking of these gods. And what the psalmist is saying, it's Yahweh that's doing this. It's Yahweh who's delivering his people, not Baal, not Marduk, and the gods of the Canaanite people. But it's the real God. But what's interesting to me is that Leviathan, the word Leviathan literally means twisting one. Isn't that an interesting name? Because my mind immediately went to serpent, monster, who twists things, who twists the truth. 
God has defeated our Leviathan, Satan. He is the serpent of old who loves to twist truth. And the passage here says that you crushed him to pieces. Genesis 3.15, there's that beautiful prophecy of old in Genesis 3.15. It says the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, right? It happened in Jesus Christ. He's crushed our Leviathan. He's given us deliverance from our enemy. Not only that, God, but you opened up springs and streams in verse 15. Remember those times we were walking through the desert wondering where are we going to get a drink of water? And out of a rock, for goodness sake, came streams. You opened it up, God. It was a miracle. You provided for us as we left now the banks of the, of the Red Sea on our journey to the promised land, God. You gave us those things. You provided miracles for us. And then you dried up ever-flowing rivers, the end of verse 15. What happened when the people of Israel got to the Jordan River? And they were ready to enter the promised land. The problem is there's a river in between them and their destination, right? So what did God do in the book of Joshua, chapter 3? It says, the priests were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. The minute their feet touched the Jordan River, it says the ever-flowing river stopped flowing upstream. And it says it was like this pile of water piled up. And they were able to cross on dry Ground. Does that sound familiar? The same way that God got them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and dry land, He got them into the promised land by dividing the Jordan River for them. God, you dried up ever flowing rivers. You can pretty much do whatever you want, God. And then in verses 16 and 7, He speaks of, you know, God, what you did in our history, in our past, and bringing us out, taking us through the the desert to the promised land. But Lord, we're going to go further back in history here to creation. And in verses 16 and 7, it talks about how he established the sun and the moon and gave them day and night. Verse 17, you set all boundaries on the earth and you gave us the seasons, God. There's this divine order. There's this boundary to God's creation. There's parameters that God has set that are in place and there's nothing we can do about it because God put it there. And that's a reminder for you and me that our enemies seem to be taking over. Our enemies seem to be winning the day, but what he's saying is remember who's really in charge. Remember who really sets the boundaries. God's enemies are going to be called into account before him. That's the promise here. There's this beautiful application, I think, for us in these verses. Remembering who God is, remembering what God has done for us. That is the way that we build our faith. It's something we can be continually doing, especially in times like now that are very difficult and very dark. And it seems like the enemy is winning. God, I remember and I know who you are. You're my king. You're my Savior. You're omnipotent. You're sovereign. You're gracious. All of those things. But God, I remember what you did. I remember the time when I was down and you sent a friend to speak to me. That was you, God. I'm going to give you credit for that and I'm going to remember that. 
or you spoke to me through the Holy Spirit. You gave me a, a verse in a particular time. God, that was you. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through your word. That was you, God. We can do that sort of thing. And again, I want to encourage you to come and, and tell. On Wednesday, if you want to come and videotape your testimony of God doing something wonderful, I would love for you to come and do that and be a part of our service next Sunday. I'd love to hear from you. That's what we need to be doing. You know, when the roof falls in, I can trust in God because I know who He is and I know what He's done. That's the message here. But then, I love how it ends, verses 18 to 23. He says, remember people, who God is and what He's done, but now He's gonna turn to God and say, remember God. I want you to remember some things. Look what He says in the final verses 18 on. Remember how the enemy has mocked you, Lord, how foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Wow, that's pretty foreboding, isn't it? Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies, which rises continually. He's going to ask God to remember four things. Number one, God, I want you to remember your enemy. Do you hear what they're saying about you? Do, they, do you hear them mocking you all day long? That's verse 18. They're trashing your name. They've trashed your temple, God, but they're trashing you. Bring them to account. That's what he's really asking there in verse 18. Then verse 19, please, God, don't forget us, your people. Remember your people. We're doves. They're wild beasts. Guess who's going to win that one, right? Dove is this picture of helplessness, of susceptibility, of defense, all of these things. Lord, we're precious in your sight, but we need some help. Would you please come and help us? Don't forget us, God. Then he says in verse 20 and 21, don't remember your covenant. You've promised, God, you have established covenants with your people, Israel. Please remember them. Remember the Abrahamic covenant, God, where you said you're gonna be a great nation where you're going to be blessed and through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Remember that, God? Please act on that now. Remember the Mosaic Covenant where you established us as your people and you put in place all of those guidelines of how we are to act as your people, the laws, the sacrifices, the feasts. God, please remember that. Remember the Davidic Covenant, God, where you promised David that his throne would endure forever. Lord, please act on your promises. We can do that with God today. We can ask God to remember his covenant with us. We call it the new covenant. We call it the covenant of grace, where on the basis of his grace alone, he sent his son, 
took our sins. We trust in him. We are saved. We are righteous. We are his possession. We are secure in our relationship with him. And we have a place awaiting us for all eternity. God, things are rough right now. I'm I'm struggling, but would you please remember your covenant with me? And then finally, remember your cause, God. They're lashing out against you, your name, and your glory. Would you stand up and defend yourself, God? And it ends with that plea. So, in conclusion, the roof is falling in. What do we do? Well, from this psalm, I would say these things. Number one, remember who God is, but God Remember, he is our king from of old. Remember God's powerful acts in the past. He's going to continue to do them. Remember God's covenant. We are his. We're bought with the blood of Christ. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Remember that. Remember that God's name and his glory will always prevail over any foe. He is the king, he is sovereign. He's got this in control. It's all part of his plan. He's working it out. We tend to remember things that we should forget, and we tend to forget things that we should remember. Is that true? We hold on to things that we need to let go of, quite honestly, and forgive others. But at the same time, there are things that we need to remember that we tend to always forget. You know, one of my roles as pastor at Clackamas Bible Church, I have a lot of roles here, I think. Teaching, obviously, is one of them. Encouraging, challenging, exhorting, maybe giving you a vision. You know, a lot of these things, I don't know. But I think one of my greatest roles here at Clackamas Bible is to help you remember. I came across a book, I was just looking online, it's called Preaching as Reminding. I'm gonna get this book. I thought, what an interesting title. And so I printed out the little thing, and I want to read this real briefly. It says, we know of the preacher's roles as teacher, proclaimer, but Jeffrey Arthurs, I believe he's related to Andy Baxter. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he's an author. He's written some books. He adds another assignment, the Lord's Remembrancer. The Remembrancer stirs the memory of Christ's followers, reminding them of the truths they once heard, and fanning the flames of faith. When done well, preaching as reminding is not empty, perfunctory repetition. Rather, it's the work of soul watchers. Preaching as reminding describes the dynamic role of the remembrancer, who prompts thankfulness and repentance, who raises hope, who fosters humility and wisdom, who exhorts obedience, and who encourages community. Wow, that's what I want to be about. I want to remind you. That's why we have right down here on this table what? Do this. Yeah, why? We need to be reminded. Why do we do communion? Because we have a short memory, right? So, here's something to think about, something I want to leave with you guys to remember today. We look around, everything seems to be in a big uproar, the roof is caving in, the world's a mess. I don't know what God's up to, but I want you to remember this, and here it is. Frog guts. 
You're laughing. You remember. Frog, fully rely on God. Guts, God's up to something. He's up to something in your life. He's up to something in this church. He's up to something in our city. He's up to something in our country. He's up to something for his name and his glory. Amen.